This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Quick bit of business before today's episode, and that is if you listen to this show on iTunes and you like it and you haven't yet left a review, please go do so. That makes a big difference. I'm not sure why, but the number of reviews we get and the recency of the reviews makes a huge difference in how high up on the search rankings we are when people are looking for various things to listen to. And since uh, this isn't a well-known show, I'm not a household name, um, except in my own household, then it really helps when you know a couple reviews a week can, can make a huge difference. And so if you haven't done that yet, that would be awesome. Now, today's show, I want you to imagine that you are an organic farmer and you're maybe in North Carolina and you've converted your farm over from, let's say, dairy production, where it had been for the majority of the 20th century, or tobacco. And, you know, you saw the writing on the wall, and you saw these giant, huge farming conglomerates take over. And instead of being an independent farmer anymore, you were being asked to just sell your stuff or to just do contract work for one of the big agribusinesses. And you wanted your independence. But, and so you looked and said, well, you know what? There's, there's this movement, this organic movement. And I think it's going somewhere. I think people are going to want higher quality food. And so you convert over. Or maybe your parents converted over and you've taken it over now. And you have maybe 10 to 20 acres. And how do you sell your stuff? You know, we see these farmers at the farmer's market. Let's say you go to the farmer's market, but you've got five acres of potatoes. How are you going to sell that many potatoes on a Saturday morning between 8 and noon? You're not. So you're going to have to go out and find places to sell your crops. You're going to have to buy a truck. You're going to have to make maybe make it refrigerated. You're going to have to drive around to dozens and dozens of restaurants. And who knows how far you're going to have to travel on any given day. You're going to have to find wholesalers who are willing to take it on if you want to sell to food co-ops or a Whole Foods or a Fresh Market or Earth Fair or something like that, you're going to have to make those deals drive around. You're going to have to find the loading bay where they're going to pick the stuff up. And you're a farmer. You've got to be out in the field, watering your crops, weeding, checking for diseases, ordering seed, managing the fertility. How are you going to do that? Enter today's podcast guest, Sandy Chronic. Sandy's the founder and CEO of a company called Eastern Carolina Organics, or ECO. And what they do is they're a food hub, and they connect those medium-scale organic farmers with markets. So it's kind of the reverse, and she'll talk about this, kind of reverse to the usual where food will come from all over and then you know, get distributed to a local store. Here, Sandy is taking this local produce, the local food from our uh, watershed from our ecosystem and then distributing it far and wide. Most of it is local, but some of it makes its way to New York City. Some of it makes its way to Atlanta. I've worked with with Sandy when we had a small uh, nettle crop, stinging nettles, and we found out that they ended up in a very, very fancy little restaurant somewhere in Georgia. So I wanted to talk to Sandy about Eco's mission, about their business model, and by the way, it's a farmer-owned company. She's not, you know, the uh, the CEO and sole owner, and the farmers are just basically sharecropping for her. They are owners in the system. And as you, you'll hear in the interview, Sandy is devotedly committed to equality, to sustainability, to all the good things in life that a food system should provide for us. So without further ado, Sandy Chronic, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So here is your office at uh, ECO, Eastern Carolina Organics in Durham, North Carolina. First, start by just telling us what, what this place is and what it does. Eastern Carolina Organics is a wholesale organic produce distribution company. We are upside down compared with most food distributors in the world because we only procure from local farms, but we ship far outside of our region. So... People in Manhattan can buy our organic kale on the shelves at a Whole Foods market or other supermarkets up there. Huh. So um, tell me a little bit about like, what's, 
what's the value proposition here? Like, I, I go to the supermarket or I go to Whole Foods, and there's an endless supply of produce. And if I, you know, uh, and it's cheap, and I don't have to worry about it. Like, why did this thing eco need to come into existence? We started eco in 2004 because we wanted to see if people were going to put their money where their mouth was. Actually, we had heard from farmers who were frustrated with the lack of reliable market for their organic produce, and we had heard from buyers, wholesale buyers, and consumers who were frustrated with the lack of local organic products on their shelves. So it seemed like supermarkets and other buyers were having to make a choice between local conventional products or organic Californian products. Uh I've, I've often wondered about this. Like I'll go to Costco and I'll see giant bins of like organic carrots and other organic produce. And I, and I can only like barely imagine like how much land must go. Like there's hundreds of Costco stores and there's people, you know, like just the amounts just boggle me. And I, I've often wondered like is there what am I buying when I'm buying organic produce from a mega retailer? Are they getting it from a mega farm? Like, what's, what's the hidden inputs and costs of the organic that, that, I'm, that I would typically buy? Of the organic produce? Yeah, like the, stu- you know, the, um, the large-scale organic, mm-hmm. either like earthbound farms or, sure. or those. Like, you know, am I doing a really good thing by choosing that over conventional? Well, the good news about all organic farms is that they are run through a uniformized federal third-party audited system. So when you see the organic label on produce, it does mean that there's not just an audit trail, but a certain degree of um, room for demanding integrity and also room for whistleblowing and other things like that. So the idea of the larger organic operations um, being able to make organic produce more accessible is actually quite valuable, I would say. Unfortunately, they do have a lot of the negative uh, side effects of large agriculture as conventional operations in terms of the um, more corporate-operated farms. And there are a lot of inputs when you are monocropping, just planting large acreage of one crop or two, that you're not necessarily as holistic. And the idea of an organic agriculture system is that we are utilizing natural systems to be able to protect and prevent from our common issues that we have. So cover cropping and um, crop rotation And even fertility programs are often based on utilizing natural on-farm resources. A large monocropping system, whether it's organic or not, has to import fertility and has to import products to be able to deal with disease management and pest management. So it's, there's certainly a social component of wanting to support a more family um, farm. There's the environmental component of wanting to be able to support farms that are closer to where you are or that are going to put more money into your local economy. There's the fossil fuel issue, certainly. But there's a a larger environmental issue about um, whether we can actually be more self-sustaining within our own kind of bioregion and being able to find more fertility that's closer to where we are. Uh So I'll get to the local in in a second. But it sounds like those big organic farms, when you say monocropping, you mean just a field of carrots or a field of bib lettuce or something like that? Yes. So why why do they have to import fertility? What What does that mean? Well, one thing I should be clear about is that through the federal USDA National Organic Program, a minimum of a three-year crop rotation is required, which is great because crop rotation is a key component to organic production. So even if you are just growing carrots, if you have an entire field of carrots, there you cannot grow carrots in that same field again right afterwards. However, you might not be growing a crop that you're going to sell. It might be more of a cover crop, which is fine, but um, larger farms certainly do try to, you know, uh, sorry, larger farms do try to pump as much out of a certain area as possible. Small farms do the same thing, but they have fewer resources in terms of being able to buy outside fertility. 
many of the farms we work with do buy fertility from off the farm, but they're certainly um, looking to cultivate more preventative and on-farm sources so that they're not spending as much with the, the organic fertilizer. Uh, so when you say buy fertility, you mean giant bags of compost and manure? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes kelp, uh-huh. um, poultry litter, things like that, yes. Okay. So, the, so I guess the idea is that those inputs have to be farmed somewhere else mm-hmm. so that there's these externalities. So if you have this, this beautiful acre of carrots that actually it's taking maybe 10 or 20 acres somewhere else to grow that acre of carrots. Is that the idea? Well, fertility is usually a byproduct of something else off and on, you know, a purchased. So I'm not sure that you could say, I, I think the example you're stating sounds much more like a, a cattle operation or a grain operation that's really feeding our fossil fuel dependence. And I don't think that's necessarily the case with an organic farm, even when they are importing. I see. Okay. So, so you know, I've, I've been going to farmer's markets for years, and there's a certain charm to farmer's markets, mm-hmm. but there's also a certain, like, pain in the ass component. Like, you got to get up on Saturday, and you have to be there before 10 when all the good stuff is gone. And, like, every, when I go there... Like clearly the stuff is more expensive. And so I feel like I'm almost, you know, I'm subsidizing something I love as opposed to if I were really pinched for money, I would just go to Aldi or Kroger's and, and buy it there. So what so from the perspective of the farmer, the the local organic farmer or wannabe organic farmer, what are the barriers to them making a living without eco? Um, well, what you just explained actually is incredibly complex in the farmer's market dynamics. I do want to say that eco really was started because of a reality that not every American was going to go to a farmer's market. However, that doesn't mean I don't think uh, the world would be a much better place if we did all shop at a farmer's market. Um, the idea that people could have a social and emotional relationship and a direct investment in somebody who is growing food and having their hand in the dirt is incredible. I think there's a health benefit that you get, not just from the direct eating of the food that's fresher, but a health benefit you get from knowing you're supporting somebody who's on their knees and hands in the dirt and cultivating some kind of life form. I think that's incredible. A child being able to grow up going on a fairly consistent basis to a farmer's market and being able to see their family interact with the people who grow food for them Mm. is incredible. So I think that there's a lot to be gained from increasing the number of farmer's markets, the accessibility, the location um, of farmer's markets all over the world. However, there's the reality that the farms that are not going to farmer's markets that we work with, we work with several that do go to farmer's markets, certainly, but it tends to be very... um, there's a strong correlation between larger farms and greater topography that is very easy to grow on and access to labor and professional tools and things like that. A certain scale that you might still be growing 40 or 60 crops on your land in any given season, but you're not growing just a, an eight, a row of it. You might be growing a quarter acre of it. And that kind of product you just can't move at a farmer's market. And also time becomes a greater resource and they just cannot literally stand behind a table and sell off their products. So the the role that Eco really plays is enabling farms who either geographically are bigger or just on, from a resource perspective because they grew up on a farm and they're, they inherited lots of tools and equipment or they have a commitment to people in their community that are a labor force for them that they want to be able to continue jobs for those people. Um, they have a need to grow on a larger scale than a farmer's market can support. And also a lot of the the best farmer's markets in this country have rules about how many miles you can be from that region because they don't want product that's imported. For example, the best farmer's markets in North Carolina, you won't see any product from Georgia or Florida. However, the easiest thing to do if you want to sell a lot of tomatoes is to have Florida product and Georgia product. So For that reason, um, actually, the farms that we work with that don't go to farmer's markets, they're really not competing with 
the farmers markets because they're at a totally different scale and they really need wholesale outlets as a partner in their ability to grow food on their farm. Meaning that they're growing at a much smaller scale than, than the farmers market could support. They're growing on a much larger scale. Larger than, scale. Yes. Okay, so they can, so, all right, so I guess, so they can't, they, they can't bring truckloads of tomatoes because there's just not enough people coming to the farmer's market to buy those. Absolutely, yes. So they need, they need to find... They um, need to sell things by the case and not by the each. Uh-huh, I see. Yeah. Um, so what gave you the idea to start ECO? Was, were these, was, was there an existing model and you just sort of franchised it for the region or was there some innovation involved? I was really lucky to have an experience in college that showed me that you could get a local farm availability list in front of a face of a chef before they ordered from their national distributors and that they would pick off a few things that they would buy locally if it was available instead of off of the national list. And so realizing that there was a key scheduling puzzle and a key delivery puzzle that could just be solved and you could support farmers in that way. The farms that we work with do not want to deliver three boxes of this or seven boxes of that. They don't want to have to stand there and collect a check or call months later when somebody doesn't pay. They really like the ability to drop everything off and know that a company that they are part owners in and that they certainly have a strong mission alignment with is out there representing them because they have so much going on on their farm. When you are a farmer and you walk out of your house or out of your truck onto the farm, you're going to see 20 or more things that have to get done that day. It's just, it's a very stressful living and there's a lot that you can't even control or predict the 20 things I'm talking about are things that you actually can control or predict, like taking care of your tools or getting something in the ground or getting something out of the ground or controlling some weeds. So there's enough going on on the farm that if you are a certain scale, you don't want to have to also think about where the products are going and maintaining great relationships, maintaining those relationships in the wintertime, for example. There's a lot that makes it very challenging for a farmer to compete with the convenience of the national food distribution world that we're in. And really, it's a global distribution world. Um, if you have a food business, you can, by midnight, fax, call, or email an order in that has avocados or limes or anything from anywhere around the world, and it will show up to you by 7 a.m. the next day. So that reality is totally detached from the local food system where there's a seasonality. You can't get the same thing every week year round. And you cannot, we, our goal is to not have product that lies around in the warehouse. We don't speculate what we're going to need. We collect our orders from our customers first and then place the harvest orders with the farmers. And so getting a call at midnight for us for a delivery the next day does nothing unless we were surprised by some extra product over the night uh -huh. because the farmers just sent us some extra stuff. But in general, that's a really hard thing we have to train customers on is to, um, to understand that we have different systems and different deadlines because we are literally harvesting the product for them. Uh, so it's, it sounds like you're, you're in a really sort of interesting relationship with with society and the economy, in that you're both you're, you're trying to fit these local independent farmers who are on their own schedules, who are not waking up with iPads and and uh, conference calls, but waking up with you know crops and weeds and and hail, and trying to fit them into this global economy, but at the same time you want to sort of subvert the attitudes that lead to this global economy of, of, of commoditization of everything, of, of standardization. I think one of the precise reasons that people really appreciate being able to support eco, our quality is great, our values are amazing, all of that is really important. But at the end of the day, a very large farm has a corporate head 
and a lot of low-level low-level laborers. Our farms have farmers <laughs> who are not just telling other people what to do. They are certainly managing people, but they're also out there in the fields. They're completely sweaty, and they're actually doing the work as well. And so I think there is a, a, a strong level of access that ECO provides to farmers in the middle is how the ag industry sometimes refers to it, that we can enable farmers in the middle that aren't small but aren't gigantic to be able to maintain their actual role as a farmer and be able to still keep that land active in agriculture, sustain it for the next generation, be able to employ people from their community to also have good jobs in agriculture, and be able to crank food out for their larger community. Um, our farms really, you know, they don't care where the product goes, but they really love the idea that local people within their state care to support them. So they're not offended that we might ship their collards or their sweet potatoes up to Boston, but they're really charmed by the reality that there's an entire system that's grown up to be able to, to train our culture and to kind of retrain us to care about how far our food travels and the people and the faces behind that product. Right now, I see, speaking of faces, I see your face a lot at Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Not you personally, but the posters that they have. Mm-hmm. You as one of the, the local farmers. And, you know, Whole Foods has been an interesting player. You know, they've, they've done more than anyone. And at the same time, they've been sub- subject to more criticism than anyone in terms of uh, the gaps between, you know, their aspirations and, and the reality on the ground. I'm curious, bef- before Eco or without Eco, what are the challenges for a Whole Foods produce manager to source local produce versus just making that midnight call and getting it by 7 a.m.? Well, I think the challenges for them were the same challenges with a lot of the independent stores that were also passionate about getting local organic products. One is just the lack of supply. We, if you're not in California, or if you're not just talking about apples in New York, or one key crop in one region, outside of California and Florida, there really was not a large opportunity of products to support those that did have solid volume and quality were often sold into a larger commodity system because there were no regional distribution routes for them. So if you want to be a certain scale and you have blueberries in North Carolina, you're selling to a global blueberry packing house that is literally brokering your product maybe 100 miles away, but maybe 1,000 miles away, and you will never know. So that was the reality of it. Over the years, we've been able to cultivate a much stronger supply, not just here in North Carolina, but all over the country with these farms in the middle that are trying to sustain their land and keep their family livelihood in agriculture and are really amazing professional and very innovative and open-minded farmers. So there's an absolute partnership that has evolved over the last couple of decades between the pool of consumers, which has absolutely told their supermarkets they want this product and the supermarkets are listening Um, and the farmers who are lingering wondering what is our next commodity what's our next thing a lot of the farms we work with really actually none of them if they're on family land were growing vegetables 30 40 50 years ago most of the successful farms today, even in the conventional scene, will probably be able to point to in the 20s we were doing dairy, in the 40s we did cotton, in the 80s we did tobacco. There's always been this evolution of agriculture on the family farm. And the fact that it's landing on something that for the farms that we work with that are actually feeding nutrition to people and not going into a larger commodity system is really remarkable and um, is absolutely fueled by consumer demand. So the supermarkets like Whole Foods that before an eco started in our region, their challenges were knowing even who to call 
And the, the product that was available from local organic farms at the time, because of the lack of a system, there very frequently was a farm showing up in the back, at the back door with a pickup truck and lettuce in the heat. And it's not because the farmers aren't amazing farmers, and it's not that the lettuce was an incredible lettuce, but supermarkets all, and even the smallest of them, they order at least you know four days, if not two to three weeks out for their product. And so they need some level of advance notice. When we started Eco in 2004, the idea was we want to support farmers and support customers, but we don't have a truck or a warehouse. Let's just see if a communicator, a bridge, like a human capacity bridge, will do, be able to do this. And our first delivery in April had strawberries. And I hopped into a pickup truck with one of our farms to go and do deliveries. I had made the invoices for them, did all the price negotiations and I hopped into their truck and there's strawberries in the back of the pickup truck and the farm didn't exactly know front door or back door which is no big deal you learn that once so we go into the back into the kitchen of the restaurant and the farm had um would have forgotten to bring their invoice out of their truck so I had it and I noticed on the invoice that um you know, I had made the invoice, but there was no receipt that said terms. If you don't tell a customer when to pay, then they're, they're not doing anything wrong by not paying. Uh-huh. And so at that moment, and after spending three hours driving around delivering probably five or ten flats of strawberries at a time with one farm, that's when I said, I need to just drive a truck. And this farm needs to go back to their farm because this is too stressful. And frankly, that farm was probably... 60 years old and had absolutely been farming since they were born and um, had done the cotton and then tobacco rotation over their family cycle. And if you've gone through something like tobacco, the government, you know, the quota system or the auction program, why in the world at a certain point in your life, if you're going to learn the learning curves of perishable products or organic or vegetables, why would you also want to learn the learning curve of price negotiation and invoice collection and all these things that had been taken out of the agricultural commodity system for them over the years? So it seemed like we were really supporting the farms as humans by just doing this stuff for them. For the farms that love to hang out in the back of a kitchen with a chef and talk about this variety of arugula or this amazing new tomato variety that's coming up, that's awesome, and there are absolutely great chefs that want to support that. And frankly, Eco has always ducked and covered from those um, dynamics because we love that that happens, and we would never want to be perceived as competing with those direct market relationships between a farmer and a buyer. Mm-hmm. But for the buyers that won't do that work, it's just like the families who won't go to the farmer's market. They might want to, but they won't. We want to focus on the buyers who just won't call the farm for their three products that they have. They want to call one phone number or do one email, and they want to know that they don't have to pay right away. They can pay in 14 days or something like that. Gotcha. So it seems like there's there's maybe different generations of farmers now. There, there were the ones you were describing who've been in, on their family farms, and like all they've cared about basically is how do we make a living off this land? And we're, we're kind of value neutral, whether it's dairy or tobacco or cotton, as long as we can pay the mortgage and keep on it. And then there's, I'm seeing these days, like a back to the land movement of, you know, young people and hippies. And, you know, know, my wife and I have moved to to a a big spot and we're trying to figure things out. Um, Have you seen, have, like, what's your relationship with those folks who like, I want to farm, but I don't know the first thing about the business end. Like, I know how to stick a seed in the ground and water it, but like from there... You know, I'm thinking of of, our, of us particularly. Like, should we invest in a five thousand dollar fence? Should we get a twenty thousand dollar hoop house? Like those those questions, we don't even know how to sit down and do a spreadsheet. Do you work with with people who are just at that beginning stage of of getting back into back to the land? There are so many questions that you just asked without knowing it. Yeah. Um, we. Luckily, do not because there are so many services that have grown up over the last 30 years to support people who want to get into farming. 
So the fact that we are a not we are a for-profit farmer-owned company and the fact that we're not a nonprofit our goal is not education. That's not what we do. We don't get it doesn't pay our bill. So we have amazing resources to refer people to. So we don't really have to do that. Uh-huh. And that, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits and there's cooperative extension services. Some of them have excellent specialization with small farms and sustainable agriculture. Some of them don't. And so there's a lot of a lot to be discussed about empowerment and knowing how to access your resources because those resources are there for everybody, but they're not utilized by everybody. And so I think that there's some room in the movement for us to figure out how to make sure that the existing resources are well networked within limited resource communities. That's another conversation. As far as the, um, the generational concept, we eco Eastern Carolina organics was very fortunate when we launched to have been made up of what I like to say, the old school farmers and the new age farmers. So we had a strong crop of farmers who had been farming forever and they were on family land and they either had grown conventionally in their life or in some cases still were growing conventionally. We also had these, this crop of new age farmers, which weren't new per se, but were only ever farming organically. In many cases, they kind of wrote the book on how to farm organically in the South, and they started the nonprofits that enable us to have educational resources for farmers about how to cure potatoes without uh, chemical inputs, or how to save seed because of the lack of organic access to good seed. So... I like to say we've always really had, and this is a key that we like to really preach to other food hubs that are starting around the country, is that you really need to have a core of farmers that's based on a diversity of farms, and you need to have very affordable, high-volume cabbage and potatoes, which is kind of like our meat and potatoes, but (laughs) no meat, Um, and the funky artisanal boutique farmers who... You don't need a high volume of arugula, but you need arugula to be important and exciting with the trendsetters and kind of the people who are out there promoting these concepts in the culinary world. And so that was always a key for us. What's really exciting, I sat in a um, a lecture by Fred Kirshenman several years ago where he showed the progression of agriculture in our country And that in many cases, we used to have commodity farms that were both large or small, like tobacco or dairy. You could have a very small dairy farm and be sustainable or a very large tobacco farm and be sustainable. And unfortunately, the way our country has gone over the last hundred years has been certainly this bigger is better concept. I think we're all very aware of it. It hopefully is like global warming. And we all recognize now that it's it's a farce, but however, he really inspired me to think about the average age of the farms that Eastern Carolina Organics works with, because average age, as we know, is a huge concern for farmers in our country. It's right now at 58.3, I believe, from the last census. You're talking about the age of the, the farmer. The average age of the American farmer. Uh-huh. And so the fact that it's nearing retirement is very significant because once you take land out of agriculture and put it into some other form of development, it's nearly impossible to take it back out. Financially, it's better to have a vacant parking lot in Kmart in a rural or urban area than to actually dig up that concrete parking lot and knock down that building and actually produce food on it. Or into a housing community, even if it's vacant, literally, and not being used, it's still basically impossible to turn it back into agriculture. So it's incumbent upon us as a country to really think seriously about how to preserve this pastoral lifestyle that we love when you drive to the beach or drive to the mountains and you're driving by open space, even if you're not living amongst it or eating vegetables that are supporting the farms nearby. Generally, we all really appreciate that as a part of the American landscape. 
but we are lo- we are at serious threat of losing that because the average age of the farm is increasing so rapidly and we are not and the reason that's happening of course is because we're not populating we're not bringing younger people into farming. So for this, I had a huge aha moment when I was hearing this man speak about the reality of an average age being kind of an indicator species or a litmus test for us as a food distribution program to be able to determine our own sustainability. And so we looked back over a 10-year period with some students um, who did the the work for us, I should give them credit, from NC State and their supply chain management program. And they thought this was a really boring question, actually. It was very fun. I had to literally convince them that a simple question in a research proposition was much more useful than something that seemed more complicated. Hmm. And that it was, that's what we needed them to focus on. But our average age from 2004 to 2013 went from um, 53 down to 48. Uh-huh. And we haven't... And it's not because your farmers are getting younger. It's not because they're... That's right. There's no fountain of youth on a farm. It's exhausting to be in the sun. And I worry about them drinking enough water days like this. But what's really exciting is that we're literally bringing new farms into the mix. And our farmers are no longer discouraging their kids from coming back to the farm. Mm. They're not telling them, this isn't a good life. I don't want this for you and your family. And we have witnessed anecdotally several stories where the kids who were in their 30s had jobs in the city and started to raise their next generation and realized this rat race, this just isn't working for me. I wanna go back to the farm. And they come to us Mm. and they say, we need to figure out how to make this much more income off the farm. And we work out the numbers and we crank out the goals. And years later, they're back in the rural community. They're sending their kids to that rural school. Hmm. They're participating in the life of a vibrant rural economy. Um, and so that like still gives me tingles. It means everything to us that we're, you know, when you talk about the picture of a farm in a supermarket, there's always some greenwashing to be aware of. But if we are able to convince consumers to actually ask or read labels and be empowered to not feel like they're a curmudgeon from Portlandia when they're asking (laughs) about the sources of their products. But they're also recognizing that they're participating in restoring farming as a really dignified way to make a living in this country and that there's a certain level of benefit that even from a land use perspective and an environmental perspective um, in terms of water quality and runoff and everything like that, that literally those posters could be participating in by making celebrities out of clean local farmers. Mm, Yeah. I started tearing when you were talking about people coming back to the farm. Yeah. That's really, that's really moving. It really is. And it's actually happening, at least within our network. And that's what empowers us to feel like, oh, we're, we're kind of a big deal, actually, because it's working. We have enough years under our belt. We were very modest for so long. I didn't have a title for years until one of our customers said, you guys really need titles at your company. People need to know who's in charge. Hmm. So the reality is that we could be modest and really focused on the farmers and the customers and the products. But at the same time, we're part of something that's actually, you can study the change that's happening, and you can go talk to these grandkids who are now like eight years old and on the farm and they're, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild how much, um, we are seeing sea change happen. And it's not just for us. I mean, there's, we have friends and partners all over the country who are doing similar work and I'm constantly preaching that they need to watch their average age because I think it's a really rewarding aspect of the job. Second to signing checks to farmers, which is the best part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have to say that for, for, for Mia and me, you know, deciding to move to six acres and, and put it under cultivation, like we haven't gotten serious about the business part yet. But if it hadn't been for conversations with you, knowing that if we grow good crops, then then the rest of the business like there are people who know how to do it mm-hmm. like that you know that was the daunting part mm-hmm. for us and knowing that there is this resource i'm sure there's there's people who are getting into farming just knowing that eco exists as as a supply chain as an aggregator and as an advocate mm-hmm. yeah i can definitely think of a couple of farms who we don't actually directly work with at this point in terms of purchasing and sales 
but who absolutely still years later will say, when I called you from California and I was thinking about moving to North Carolina to farm, you were the conversation that helped me realize we can make this happen. And that's because our role is not just to, you know, figure out more product to buy and sell, but our role is to really help, you know, encourage a society where this is all possible. So for that reason, I think that it's very exciting to realize that there are men, just like diversity is important in our microbial soil. Um, it's also really important in a marketing strategy. And so there's, you know, there's, we need to be able to support and cultivate several avenues for people to be able to access the food system as a producer. I do think there's an interesting shift happening where as we, there's a lot of direct market channels that are incredibly rewarding financially, but are becoming a little less secure for farmers in terms of either the income that they could expect off of the product or just the loyalty and the demand base. And I do think that there's something to be said for perhaps processing as the, the wild card or the like hidden, what's that term? The, uh, the, the, the horse, the dark horse. The dark horse. Thank Me- you. Processing meaning taking your product and turning it into jam or yeah, you know, I think that pie or something like I that. think that processing is potentially the dark horse in this system that has been neglected recently or for a long time, but is possibly coming around as a really important opportunity for someone like you and Mia to be able to say, well, you know, we want to grow something, but having a very diversified operation where we have to go to a farmer's market every week or maintaining a CSA community or just making promises to Mm. many people doesn't sound like the lifestyle you want. You just want a peaceful lifestyle where you're participating in some production and, um, and some income taking care of yourselves. So in, in many ways, there are a lot of producers out there that are not farmers. There are a lot of food producers and entrepreneurs that are out there making products and it's not just jams and pickles anymore on a larger basis and they're finding outlets in small retail operations or at the farmers markets and i think that it's outlets like that that could potentially be a huge opportunity for small farms to be able to get a certain level of reliability be able to sell a hundred percent of their product rather than just the grade one perfect Mm. shiny stuff and go with a little bit of a lower price or a lot of a lower price but on the whole, it's a much stronger operation because of the reliability of the partnership and the la- less time invested in the marketing. Uh-huh. So, right. so when th- you talk about you and Mia, that's the thought that just came to mind. All right. Well, I got to figure, I got to find out later what, what we can do other than jam and pickles. <laughs> well, the idea is that you don't have to make the jams or the pickles. The idea is that you're finding somebody who makes jam or pickle or kraut or... Mm-hmm flavored salt with herbs in it and you find out what kind of herbs they want and then mm. you find out how much how much volume and what they can pay for it and what time of year they need it and then you say can i be your producer gotcha and you develop a friendship mm-hmm. so are you, are you th- saying that eco may get into that or are you saying that there needs to be a, a parallel hub of the uh, producers no there there is a world happening of an explosion of food entrepreneurs and the good food awards and there's a lot of national attention given to these amazing food entrepreneurs who generally were doing something else when they realized that they make some darn good blank (laughs) and so they went from making it out of their home for holiday presents to making it out of their home for some level of sales to doing it in a commercial kitchen and maybe now they even have their own facility and their own employees and a branding company and they want to continue to grow in that way. And so I would say for producers out there, growers, to be able to read the labels of where things are grown and just not be afraid to call or email somebody and say, I love your pickled green strawberries did you have a good market for that? Or is there anything else you're looking for that you would love a local farmer to grow for you that Mm. I can experiment with and not make any promises the first year, just try it a little bit, but know that they're not going to burn their bridges with their current supplier um, and try it out. 
or as a um, consumer who wants to support a more sustainable food system to buy the pickles and krauts and things like that um, and know that you're generally supporting entrepreneurs who do care about freshness and quality and local food systems and local to them is not just a mileage but generally a relationship it's do I really directly know that person who's producing this product that's eco's main challenge is that we have trucks and drivers and things like that but we really also love having our farmers meet our customers and so we want to be a um we want to be a values-based middle person type operation but we really need our customers and our farmers to know each other and to really enjoy hanging out with each other which they of course do I had one other thought we were just discussing. What were you? What was your last question? I don't really. Fun thought. Uh, About producers. Oh, one thing I think is really important if you are a farmer who wants to call a food producer and find out if they have a local source of something or if there's anything else they would like to be grown from a local farm is that I really think it's important and I preach this to buyers as well as producers I think it's really important to ask if they're having that same conversation with anybody else and that's because we are all trying to change a system and that is hard work but the thing that could really make it harder is infighting hmm. and defeating each other. And it generally, I can assume, because I want to be happy and assume the best out of everybody, we can assume that people are not trying to compete with another local farm and instead trying to figure out how to plug into a food system. But if you don't do a great job of communicating, then you might accidentally create a more highly competitive environment. And I'm not going to say competition is bad. For a reason, we decided to launch Eco as an LLC that could exist in a free market capitalist system because we really were passionate that there's supply and demand and we wanted to be able to make it work in that system without grants. But I think that the values and integrity and just looking out for each other is really key to remember at every step along the process, and especially when you're talking to a buyer, because by total mistake, they might have already talked to somebody about asparagus, and the last thing they want, or you want, or the other farmer wants, is for them to have too much asparagus that they've promised to be able to purchase, and that plummets the price for everybody. Mm -hmm. So... If you really care about sustainability, you have to care about sustainability of relationships. And in order to do that, you have to preach these concepts in your conversations. And sometimes that's as simple as, are you talking to anybody else about broccoli for the fall? Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of the farmer's market itself, which on one level, it's the most competitive space there is like you're walking around like who's got the cheapest or best tomatoes and then on the other hand if there was just one farmer you wouldn't even be there yeah right. when you talked about products being too expensive at the farmer's market i think every farmer's market is different but i would say that a lot of farmers complain who have been going to farmer's markets for a long time that they're always trying to stay on top of the next hot item that a chef may want and then bring it to the farmer's market but the next season five other farms will have that same product and you can no longer get a premium for it because everybody is competing with each other on price. So it's a very challenging climate, I would say, for farmers to be able to find financial security. And I think in many cases, the farmers would find that that product is actually much more affordable than in a local supermarket, certainly if it was also of that quality. Sure. Well, a lot, uh, a lot to think about and a, a, big, a big system to change. So Sandy Chronic of Eco, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 158. 
If you're new to this show, you can catch up on 157 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly email newsletter, get over to plantyourself.com and sign up. I include links not just to the episodes, but to original articles I write. I share recent episodes of my Tribe Well TV show, and I try to use proper grammar and avoid typos. This week, I've been a guest on other people's podcasts, including Curiously Veg Radio with Hope Hughes and David Powell. And you can find a link to that show in the show notes for my episode, or if you have a great memory, emblazon this URL on it, curiouslyvegradio.com slash episode 17. Also interviewing me was Wendy of Healthy Girls Kitchen, and it's only her second podcast, so it would be pretty easy to find me if you just go to www.healthygirlskitchen.com. And apparently the www is important there since it seems to forward via Blogspot. If you are in the Detroit, Michigan area, come out and meet me on June 28th. I'll be speaking at the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group, which apparently is the largest such group in the country. You should check out pbnsg.org. That's PB, Plant-Based and Nutrition SG Support Group, pbnsg.org to find out more and to buy tickets. Also, I did a podcast with them, with uh, Jeremy Glogauer, and that interview should be up any day now. Back to this podcast. Thank you so much to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilnikovsky, and David Bizek for your generous support of the podcast. If you who are not on that list would like to support the show, you can do so. You can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can, as I mentioned at the top of the show, write a review on iTunes. And you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Next week, I talk with Glenn Merzer about co-writing books with plant-based celebrities and about his novel about a vegan congressman running for president. In garden news, we've had crazy wet weather this past week, including one stormy night that dumped six inches of rain on the garden. At the same time, we've been experimenting with deer deterrence. We keep finding deer tracks and evidence of deer munching. They really like beets and Swiss chard, by the way. So we went on Amazon and looked for some stuff, and we tried out a motion detector slash sprinkler that when it perceives motion, shoots a ratcheting spray of water accompanied by a sort of a machine gun ack-ack-ack sound. Well, it turns out that rain and wind are perceived as motion. So in addition to that six inch downpour, our corn also got treated to a continuous watering from the sprinkler all night. And much of it is lying on its side, sort of gasping for breath. We live and learn. That's all for this week. And as always, be well, my friends.